Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Inequality is one of the biggest and most persistent problems in American life, and many argue that to alleviate inequality, we should focus on improving schools and eliminating discrimination. Our guest today, Nate Hilger, would not disagree with either of those aims, but he thinks there is a much more effective tack, one that has the potential to make a much bigger impact. In his new book, The Parent Trap, How to Stop Overloading Parents and Fix Our Inequality Crisis, Hilger argues that the main problem lies at the intersection of parenting and skill building. Hilger argues that schools are pretty equal, but parents' skill building abilities are not. No, Hilger doesn't believe that parents who don't know how to build various skills in their children are bad parents. And he also doesn't think that parents who don't know how to fill their children's cavities because they aren't dentists are bad parents. Simply put, Hilger says that when it comes to skill building, we expect parents to do too much, and that expecting parents to build skills they don't know how to build will perpetuate inequalities. Prior to writing The Parent Trap, Nate Hilger was a professor of economics at Brown University and a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He was also a lead policy consultant on early childhood and non-K-12 child development issues for Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign. Nate, welcome to the report card. Thank you very much, Nat. It's a real pleasure to be here. So just to quickly get into this book and lay some groundwork, when it comes to public policy efforts to ensure children lead successful lives, where would you say we're currently placing our bets? Well, for the last couple centuries, we've been placing our bets on the K-12 education system. And as I think you summarized quite nicely in your intro, I think we have a little bit outdated impressions of the power of our K-12 system right now as we've endowed it. And we need to start expanding our bets far beyond the limited time that kids spend in our existing K-12 system. In the intro, I kind of alluded to this. Your argument kind of rests on the assertion that schools and maybe most of the places we're putting our bets on now are really just not as different as the student outcomes we're seeing. Am I getting that right? Yes, that's exactly right. Schools, to the surprise of many people in America today, are really the most equal part of childhood. And if you think about it for a second, I have a table in the book that summarizes this. All children at school today have college-educated teachers. Rich and poor kids today get, on average, relatively similar funding per student. And if you step back and look at the analogous kinds of inequalities that kids are experiencing in the 90% of childhood that they spend outside of school, you see that those inequalities are dramatic and stark and radical compared to the relatively minor inequalities that kids experience in today's K-12 system. Okay, so that leads us to the parent trap. So, Nate, what's the parent trap? The parent trap is that we place unrealistic expectations on parents to build what turns out to be an extremely complex, sprawling portfolio of skills that can really benefit children once they become adults. And that is the first aspect of the trap, the unrealistic expectations. But I think there's another more subtle trap that I talk about in the book, which is that we have no really comfortable way to talk about the first trap. As you alluded to nicely, and I want to say generously in your summary of the book in the introduction, many people feel that when you suggest that the playing ground is not equal outside of school and that Many parents are much better suited to set up their children for success than other parents. 
many people immediately get defensive and they feel threatened and they think that you're creating a hierarchy of superior and inferior parents. And nothing could be further from the truth. But I think that hiccup in our language and our our heuristics and how we, we think about parenting, I think that makes it impossible to really talk about the reality, which is that some parents, through no fault of their own, despite all their love and their best efforts, are not going to be able to carry the full task of setting up their kids for success. And when we place that unrealistic expectation on them, everybody loses. So, Nate, I'm interested in, before I get to what you think we should do about it, right off the bat, I'm thinking some folks are going to take exception to this. Because as much as you want to say, well, you know, all parents are great, it's actually fairly easy to say, well, schools are institutions, and therefore they do unequal jobs because they are sort of, you know, faceless institutions that we can kind of blame and they can hold that blame. And, and I'm not suggesting that you're ferrying and blame, but it, it's akin to the argument, right? So how has this been reacted to? And how do you deal with that first initial impression that, hey, don't blame parents? This has been reacted to with a range of challenge and threat and concern through many drafts of the book over many years. And the way that I reacted to that in revising the book and working on this problem was to develop some different language. And I tried to break up parenting into two jobs. The first job I call caring about children. And that is really an egalitarian task that is rich and profound and important and that the vast majority of parents are able to do. Caring about children is, you know, it's about loving kids, sharing what brings you joy and meaning in your life. For many people, that's religion, sports, art and culture family and relationships. So that's where a lot of parents can really thrive. And it's really important work. But there's a second job of parenting, which I refer to as skill building. And what I'm trying to do with this book is make people realize that building skills in children is a lot harder and more complicated than we understand or acknowledge. It really should be thought of more like, as you mentioned, filling a cavity or medicine or law or flying an airplane. There are all kinds of complex, difficult tasks in our society where nobody feels threatened if you assume they can't do it all that well. And I think we need to start thinking and talking about many aspects of child skill development in that way, to take the threat and the blame and the judgment off the table so we can have this fundamental conversation about inequality. So the next question is, you know, what to do about it. It seems like you say that we need to do more to shift some of the parenting burden off of parents. And on to someone else. How do we do that? That's right. And I'm not talking about taking kids away from parents or kids spending, you know, outrageous amounts of time in cold institutions or anything. This is really just giving all parents access to the professional support and the professional services from their local community members that affluent, highly educated parents are already buying in their own time with their own resources. These are people like tutors and counselors and coaches, nurses, physicians, people from your local community who right now are very difficult for many parents to procure because it is very expensive and it is a very complicated market to enter into if you don't have a lot of expertise and confidence. So that's really what I'm advocating. And that would take the form of a much richer early education system so that Parents, you know, have the option if they want to put their kids into a high quality child care center starting from birth through kindergarten. It would take the form of much easier 
affordable access to tutors and counselors, summer programs, college counseling, mental health counseling. So that's really what I'm talking about, giving all parents access to the kinds of professional services and support that right now we make implicitly exclusive to affluent parents. So, Nate, you're an economist, so this should make sense. There's a question of supply and demand here. So let me ask on the demand side. Where do you think there's the need for these services in particular, and and how would we assess that? And is there demand in the places where we need that? In other words, do parents want these services? Absolutely not. I think childcare, for example, demand for high-quality childcare and surveys is off the charts for both Republican and Democratic parents. Something like 80 or 90% of parents feel very positively when you ask them if they support universal access to high-quality childcare. I believe that a lot of parents would be more than happy to have high-quality summer programs available to their kids, especially, and in some cases exclusively, if the parents didn't have to do a lot of proactive, logistical, detective work to find the right program to make sure that they weren't sending their kid to a bad program because they had safeguards in place and knew that all of the options in front of them were good, healthy, safe options. I I really believe that parents would be thrilled to have this. And the best evidence for that is, I think, the behavior of affluent parents who have the money and the expertise to procure these services with confidence and who demonstrate with their behavior that they do have a demand for these services. And when we think of parent responsibility in this, I mean, a lot of folks are going to listen to your argument and say, okay, parents have these responsibilities and they transmit these skills and we need to backstop this with institutional supports or access to supports. Is there any moral hazard here? Is there anything that we should be instead doing where we turn this on its head and implore parents? You need to take a more active or a more purposeful responsibility in your parenting? I mean, is there an upside to preaching the practice that some of the families who are more successful in instilling these skills do? I think if, you know, Head Start invests in helping parents achieve their own goals more effectively. You know, Head Start sends home visitors to homes and tries to help parents, you know, learn about modern intensive parenting techniques that are not always obvious or simple. And there are some evidence, not conclusive, but there's some evidence that that can be beneficial to parents, which is would be consistent with what the Nurse Family Partnership home visiting programs have found. We should keep an eye on a moral hazard component, but I don't think that's going to be a major consideration because in this scenario, we have a big advantage, which is that parents love their children. And parents really want their children to succeed. And that puts a structural curb on the potential for parents to withdraw their support for children because they think, oh, you know, my school and all these tutors and summer programs are just doing my job for me. So I'm going to check out. I don't think that is a major risk. Parents love spending time with kids. They want to help them. And if we can make it easier for them to do it confidently and give them that feeling of success, I think I don't think it's a major concern. 
So let's get back to the services and how you might backfill this. And l- let me get back to the front of the argument, to the fact that parenting and some of the differences that we see across groups may be less the product of schools and more related to parents and the mechanism by which that may flow. You mentioned in the book that you know there's discrimination and a lot of times we hang differences in student outcomes on discrimination across groups by income or by race. And you talk a lot about Asian American families. And frequently, it may be easy to lean on stereotypes that sort of avoid the amount of discrimination that Asian Americans actually face. But they do face a lot of discrimination. Yet, oftentimes, they're the model minority. So how do you look at these angles when it comes to Asian Americans? I mean, in simplest terms, if they face so much discrimination, why have they proven to be so successful? I have a long discussion of Asian American history in the chapter of the book that I devoted to racial inequality. And I think there's a very clear picture that emerges of Asian American history from that chapter. And when I say Asian American here, I want to clarify, I'm focusing on the history of Japanese and Chinese Americans. Those groups, as I describe in the book, experienced very intense discrimination in California. I focus my my discussion on California because that was the epicenter of Asian American migration until quite recently. And I talk about how in California, Chinese and Japanese Americans experienced a wide range of discriminatory practices in labor markets, a little bit in schools. At no point did they experience the kind of discrimination that was prevailing in the South for non-white disadvantaged groups there. But in California, they did nonetheless experience pretty awful, severe amounts of discrimination. And I think the reason why they nonetheless achieved extremely rapid upward mobility after World War II is that the Chinese and Japanese Americans who were able to reach America during the Chinese and Japanese Exclusion Act era were an extremely unrepresentative group of Chinese and Japanese citizens. They tended to be dramatically more educated than the people who remained in China and Japan. And I think their wages and their earnings before World War II were suppressed by widespread discrimination and did not reflect their relatively high levels of skill. But after World War II, a wide range of discriminatory practices gradually fell away through Supreme Court decisions and the civil rights movement. And that allowed the children of these families who had acquired a lot of their parents' skill to right away cash in on those skills and get good jobs. And so what I talk about in the book is how that is not a path that any other minority in America can replicate. Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, none of them have access to this very exceptional story of Asian American history where a very unusual group of Chinese and Japanese people came to America and had children. A key part of this story is you're saying, well, it's not institutional differences. A lot of this is going to be transmitted from parents to children. Sorry, could you clarify that question, Nat? I just mean the question about how the advantages for these specific subpopulations transmitted would be, well, it's not because there was a lack of discrimination or that there were some particular institutional advantages. They didn't have better schools. A lot of this would have been transferred from parents to children. Is that the argument? Yes, that is sort of the argument. I do want to emphasize that Asian Americans in California 
did not experience the kinds of educational discrimination that Black Americans in the South experienced. There was never a widespread school segregation system for Asian Americans in California. There were a few so-called Oriental schools that were segregated, but overall, California throughout the 20th century had a surprisingly integrated and relatively high quality education system. But even if that hadn't been the case, I do think that the advantages that parents are able to bestow on their children outside of school would have played a very large advantageous role for the children of Chinese and Japanese American immigrants. In the book, it seems that you suggest that the black-white income gap is not necessarily primarily a result of present-day discrimination. Is that right? And if so, how do you support that claim? That is largely right. I think labor market discrimination, it's still important. Do not get me wrong there. It is, there is still a large amount of evidence of discrimination by employers against African-Americans. And there is massive discrimination in our criminal justice system, in many other institutions in our country. However, I present a lot of evidence suggesting that if we were to follow the policy ideas that I lay out in the book, which I refer to as family care, you know, giving everybody access to these kinds of professional tutoring, childcare, counseling, healthcare services, if we could make that investment, it would wind up closing a lot of skill development opportunity gaps between black and white children in America. And the evidence suggests that when you close skill gaps between black and white children, you wind up closing a very large share of their income gap, that apparently the amount of labor market discrimination we have in America today, while still significant and important, is not enough to keep high-skilled black children from getting good jobs and having good careers. So... This, again, you know, it bumps up against touchy subjects. I mean, you know, very difficult feelings. You're talking about differences by racial groups and how they've negotiated discrimination and relating this to parents. I totally appreciate how you separate. On the one hand, there's caring for children and there's a separate skill building component. But I want to just make sure you have plenty of room to respond on, on here to folks who would hear this and say, wow, that I'm quite critical of this. What you're saying is insensitive or minimizes the effort of Black parents. So just to be crystal clear, how do you negotiate responses on that so that you can be very clear about what you are saying and aren't saying? Great. Yeah, thanks for making space for that. I do believe that there is still labor market discrimination, and I don't think that we should put a pause to all the wonderful efforts that are at play to eliminate that labor market discrimination. It's still not a level playing field for Black and white children even if they have identical skills in America today. And those efforts should continue. They're really important. However, what I'm arguing is that closing skill gaps, which really come from opportunity gaps in childhood, would be one of the best things we could do to close Black-white income gaps. And this is not at all to place any blame on Black parents or any other parents. Talk about in the book how Black parents face additional structural obstacles because of their unique history in our country. It is not that they have deficits, it's that they have additional obstacles. And that reflects slavery centuries ago and then multiple centuries of Jim Crow, which really closed out skill development opportunities for Black families. I talk about a wonderful book that I cite in the chapter, which goes through the heroic, really inspiring efforts of Black people historically to acquire skills, 
to go to school, to improve their literacy and numeracy early after slavery. It was an overwhelming tsunami of demand by Black families to better themselves and to get skills. And the response of society was to shut that down at every turn. And that has had long-term consequences that make it harder for Black parents to navigate the college ecosystem, makes it harder for Black parents to afford and navigate all kinds of other supports, the healthcare system, getting access to tutors, getting access to high-quality childcare. The legacy of slavery and Jim Crow has created additional obstacles for Black parents. And what I'm arguing is that massive expansions in skill development opportunities supported by professionals would be a really helpful thing for Black, Native American, and Hispanic families in our country. Fair enough. So let's drill down a little bit on skill building. So in real concrete terms, you differentiate skill building from providing care for children. So I understand that. But in real palpable terms, what kind of skills are we talking about and what do they enable children to do? Thanks for asking that question. We should, I probably should have started with that because skill is a very abstract term. For many people, skill means reading, writing, and math. And that is not what I mean in this book. That is part of what falls under skills. But really, skills are a much broader set of abilities. They include things like patience, discipline, conflict resolution, charisma, leadership. There's a very wide range of social, emotional, and behavioral skills on top of the cognitive skills, the math, reading, the logic. And all of these skills underlie people's ability to get jobs and contribute and earn an income independently as adults. So those are the kinds of skills I'm talking about. And those are the kinds of skills that come from our education system very partly, but that we really rely on parents overwhelmingly to assure children develop during their 18 years of childhood. And that's where I think professionals could play a very large role to help families build those skills more effectively. Nate, when you talk about parents building skills, how do you think about the difference between larger families instilling those skills and smaller families? And what does that mean for skill building? So we might think that parents who have many children, let's say five or six, would have less time to devote to skill building with those children. And so those kids might have fewer skills. And that parents of only children or just a couple might have more marginal time and thus may be better able to build those skills. So do we know anything about whether that skill building translates across family size? And what does that tell us about how skills are transferred from parents to kids? The research on this does suggest that a larger class size at home does have small negative consequences on average, I believe. However, I think we should really, as a society, be embracing large families. And if people want to have four or five kids, wonderful, but just don't place the full child development burden on them. If people have four or five or six kids, let's put all those kids into great early learning environments, great schools, great summer programs. Let's get them tutoring if they're falling behind. Let's take a lot of that burden off the parents so the parents can focus on caring for those kids. And our society desperately needs higher fertility rates over the next century. America, like many other European countries, is becoming a geriatric society. And anything we can do to increase fertility by making it easier and better and healthier for parents to have more kids, I think is great. We should embrace it. The small downside of like diluted parent attention across those four or five kids, I think it's pretty small compared to the benefits of a 
younger, dynamic population for a country. So your suggestion is that we need to invest a lot more in skill development outside of school and the broader set of structures. I want to discuss the studies and so forth that you're basing some of this argument on. You're an economist. Let's talk a little bit about the IRS data bank. I mean, what is it and why is it important? And what did it enable you to do that you otherwise couldn't? The IRS data bank was this astounding research project initiated by Emmanuel Saez, Raj Chetty, and John Friedman right when I was in graduate school. I'm forgetting exactly when, I think in the 2010s. And it was the IRS's effort to start using their data to develop richer insights that could improve the U.S. tax system. And they decided to contract with some researchers to help them do that. And I was part of the initial research team, myself and Danny Yagan, who's now a professor at Berkeley, were the two research assistants alongside the principal investigators. And the data bank, you know, really wrestled the hundreds of millions of tax records across all these different forms, the 1040, all the W-2s, all the 1098s, all these obscure forms that give Americans chills when they hear about them because they're kind of cumbersome. This massive sort of semi-disorganized set of records, we kind of put them together into a form that would make them much more useful to answer concrete research questions about human behavior that could improve the tax system and shed new light on things. And I think the single most exciting aspect of this new data resource was that it could connect children's childhood environments and aspects of those childhood environments with their longer-term outcomes decades later when they were adults. And it could do that in a data set with hundreds of millions of people, which would allow us to study things with much greater precision. And for a long time, research on children has been stuck looking at short-term impacts. You know, if you improve a teacher or you give a kid access to a tutor, what happens to their, their math or reading test score one year later? Suddenly, we could ask a much more important question, what does that do to a child's income later in their life? Do they get a better job because they had an algebra tutor in sixth grade or they had a better kindergarten teacher? This was a, like basically a, a level up in social science. And so how did you relate studies using the IRS data bank to the parent trap? A lot of studies that have come out of the IRS data bank and other administrative data sets like that as part of this big data revolution in social science, they have allowed me in the parent trap to put dollar numbers on the importance of a lot of childhood investments, investments that help kids build the kinds of skills we're talking about. And what that allowed me to do is quantify that the sum total of these opportunity gaps that we let fester in our society, they mean the difference between our kid earning hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars more over the course of their career or not. I think it makes it a lot more concrete for people if they know that the opportunities that a rich kid gets versus the opportunities that a poor kid gets sum up to this very tangible number, which is in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I want to emphasize that I don't focus on dollars because I'm a craven materialist and I think that all that matters is how much money you make. I focus on dollars just because it's a barometer of well-being. A lot of research has shown that people who have higher incomes, they're also healthier. They report greater sense of well-being. They tend to have healthier marriages. They commit fewer crimes. So the value of these kinds of new data sets is to show that childhood opportunities make a massive, long-term, very concrete difference in the kinds of contributions that people can make to their society. 
Sure, and I think we can buy that, especially over millions of observations, that it's it's a barometer of, of good things. You talk in the book a good bit about Perry and Absidarian. These early education programs. Yeah, exactly, and other early education programs. Now, these are a couple of very sort of small scale, some might call them boutique. First of all, give us an overview briefly of what they are, but what do you think the studies about these programs show? So Perry and ABC Darien, these were two small programs in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and in North Carolina that randomized some kids into very high quality early learning environments before age five, and other kids who were recruited to participate were randomized into a control group that didn't get access to these high quality early learning programs. Each study was about 100 kids, 50 in the treated group, 50 in the control group. Each study is unique in that it then followed the kids for several decades. And it showed enormous short-term impacts on their cognitive and social-emotional outcomes. But then it also showed down the road, these kids had higher incomes, they committed fewer crimes, they were more likely to be employed. And the takeaway from these programs has been that there is this extraordinary potential of high-quality early learning environments to transform kids' lives, to make a significant difference in, in what they can contribute and how they can have an independent, healthy, vibrant economic life as an adult. So that's what those programs are. That's the background. As you mentioned, a lot of people criticize making too much of these programs because they were small and they were run by researchers. They were not representative large-scale government programs. I address that criticism, I believe, very persuasively in the book. There is another program that I believe is a culmination of this research line of inquiry called the Infant Health and Development Program. That took the ABC Darien program, which was just 100 kids, and it took the curriculum from that program, and it rolled it out to eight diverse cities around the country. And it found in seven of those eight cities the same massive positive impacts on kids. So I think that is kind of directly addressing the concern that you mentioned. And, and I'd be curious how you, what your reaction was to that part of the chapter. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, a big question and part of my next one is, well, can these scale and where do returns to scale start to lose their marginal effect? That's the big question as yet unanswered. Right. I go into some of the emerging research on that. States around America and cities around America have started to scale up these programs. They're no longer run by boutique professors at universities. They're run by democratic governments and agencies. And I would say the evidence overall is extremely promising there. A recent study came out from Boston, which was able to look at impacts of their early education program on kids' college outcomes and high school graduation outcomes and found very positive impacts. There have been similar, very encouraging findings in New Jersey, in Georgia, in Colorado, and studies that have looked overall nationally have also found very positive overall impacts, especially for lower income and working class parents. I also want to point out that when I hear the generally conservative concern about scalability, to me, I'm kind of like, well, ABC Darien and the Infant Health and Development Program have proven that this is a scientific phenomenon, that if you give kids the right kind of opportunities, it can have a massive positive impact on their lifetime outcomes. And I wish more people on the right felt excitement about how we could tap into that. And if we all embrace this as a scientific possibility and thought, how can together we make sure we get the quality at scale that we need to make this happen, 
I think it would be really exciting. To me, it's kind of like looking at the Wright brothers' experimental flight and saying, well, sure, you can fly an airplane, but can it scale? That's not the right reaction. The right reaction should be, holy crap, you've demonstrated that we can fly human beings in airplanes. Now it's an all-hands-on-deck moment to scale that because it's so promising and now we know it's possible. So I take your point. And many of the programs that you discuss in the book show these benefits that can be had, but there's other programs that don't have these strong benefits. So what are the main features that you think differentiate the ones that work from the ones that won't? I mean, if we're looking at how to build these these airplanes, to extend a metaphor, maybe a little too far, what are the features that make it work? You're definitely right. I try really hard to follow the evidence in this book in a nonpartisan, dispassionate way. I think there are some really interesting, rigorous studies in Quebec, for example, Quebec, Canada, and in Bologna, Italy, and a more recent one in Tennessee, which do show persuasively to me that some early childhood education programs are not achieving their goals. They're not having these big positive impacts on kids. A common theme for many of these has been larger class sizes. There's some really interesting kind of philosophical neuroscience work suggesting that little children, basically, they have a machine learning algorithm in their brain, which is built on trust with a lot of one-on-one attention from an adult. And it's impossible to get that kind of heavy-duty, one-on-one trusted attention if your little kid class size is really big. I think training of the professionals who are involved can play a big role. The Nurse Family Partnership is another program which has done a lot of great research demonstrating that if a well-trained nurse visits the home of a lower-income first-time mom and tries to help her navigate all the challenges of, of motherhood early on, that can have important positive impacts for the, both the mother and the kid. They did an interesting trial where they tried to replace registered nurses with less expensive paraprofessionals who have less training and less experience, and that dilution resulted in no impacts of the program. So these are the kinds of things in terms of class size and the training and the qualifications of the professionals involved in providing the services that can really matter. And we really need to do more evaluation and research and development to understand what makes these programs tick. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I also talk in the book about how little we spend on that evaluation and research function in our society. The way that I'm hearing you talk about this sort of reminds me about this David Kerp piece. And I think the title sort of says it all. I believe the title was Universal Pre-K Can Work If We Do It Right. Well, (laughs) that's a pretty big if there. And that just raises the question, again, when you talk about Absidarian or ABC Darian, a lot of the components of those are home visiting. And the thing that you're talking about here, well, we're going to need registered nurses to do these things. So the investments in these, while, you know, there's work by Heckman and so forth that'll say, well, they pay off well over and above their costs. It's not a small ask, is it? To do these right or to get it to where David Kerp would say, we can do universal pre-K if we do it right. The ask is sizable, right? Definitely. Closing opportunity gaps in America, it has a price tag. But I really think it's expensive to fix your roof on your house, too. If your roof is leaking, it might cost you $20,000 to get a new roof. But what's the alternative? It's obviously unwise to let a leaky roof fester and gradually destroy the value of your home. 
It's more expensive not to assure that children get the opportunities they need than it is to pay for those opportunities. When I hear people say the David Kirk title point, universal early education can be great, but only if we do it right. Is there anything that's not true about, you know, like pizzerias are great, but only if we do them right. You know, airplanes are great, but only if we do them right. Roads and bridges are great, but only if we do them right. It's not a special catch about child development programs that we have to do them right. Let's do it right. We are freaking America. We can go to the moon. We can do a lot of things right. Let's not feel so sheepish that, oh, maybe we can't build a good daycare system. Give me a break. Plus, our military has already built a great daycare system. So let's scale it up because we know we can and we owe it to ourselves. So in the book, you talk about, in relationship to the parent trap, management of businesses in India. What does the management of these businesses tell us about the parent trap? Oh, geez. I love that paper. That's a study by some economists who went to India. And this is in the section of the book where I compare parents to CEOs, because I talk about how parents are really in charge of what turns out to be a pretty complicated enterprise, raising children. And this study went to a lot of textile factories in India, and it did a randomized controlled trial, just like a clinical trial like the FDA does with, with pharmaceutical products. And it randomized half of these businesses into a program that gave them training on modern management techniques. And it did pretty aggressive training where it showed them that this really can work. And it, it found trusted messengers to convince the CEOs that these new management practices would work. And these are simple practices like keeping the floor of the factory clean from clutter. So you know immediately if something is wrong because you see there's one piece of garbage on the floor. Or managing your inventory so you don't have a back room with like 9,000 disorganized spools of yarn. These are things that all big American companies do in order to stay in business and compete. But in India, there were tariffs that protected domestic industry. And you know you wouldn't necessarily go out of business if you had weak management practices. And what they found is that when they convinced businesses to adopt these modern management practices, the businesses experienced much larger profits. It was just a huge benefit for these companies. They also found that the businesses who needed the most help were the least likely to be aware that they needed this help. It wasn't like they went to factories and the factories who were struggling the most were like, oh, thank goodness you're here. We could really use some guidance. It was the opposite of that. And the relevance to parents is that I think a lot of parents could use a lot of help. And parents are busy, you know, all the complexity and nuance of child development is not at the forefront of their mind necessarily because they have to have a full-time job. They have their own health problems. They have their own family responsibilities. And that study is really just to illustrate that even when you feel like you're good at your job and you feel like things are going well, you should be humble and keep an open mind and understand that maybe professionals who have spent years thinking about this and getting training and keeping up to date with the most current research, they might have a lot to offer you. And that would be a normal thing. And if that's true for CEOs of textile plants in India, it's surely true for me and you and other individual parents doing our best kind of scraping by and improvising day by day. Nate, I'm curious about how much of the skill building is directly tied to parenting. So you could think about this like, well, parents spend a lot of time with their kids at home and yeah, they build some skills, but they spend most of their time doing some other stuff, right? It's not directly skill building. It may be resources, 
It could be expectations. The environments may be more or less intellectually stimulating. Am I missing the idea of what parental skill building is by separating these things out? Or is all this together skill building that we should be able to ameliorate through other institutional supports? A lot of the ingredients that you're talking about are part of an effective skill development strategy. The same way that when you have an employee, you know, your expectations for that employee are an important part of helping them work productively. The kinds of programs that I'm talking about would provide a lot more universal access to mentors to provide a lot of these kinds of informal guidance and expectations and awareness of bigger possibilities. So if, you know, if kids are going to summer school and they have good counselors, they're going to get access to a different set of expectations and a different set of choreographed activities day after day, summer after summer. If kids have access to a tutor, you know, a lot of parents spend a lot of time tutoring their kids. We don't always call it that. We call it helping with your homework, but it's really tutoring. It's a very advanced professional service that we're asking parents to provide with homework. I think it's kind of pervasive skill development. It encapsulates many different activities that parents do and that this richer kind of professional support that I'm advocating for could really help provide. All right, Nate, let's take a break for a few minutes for a section we call Grade It. I'm going to name something, ask you to grade it on an A to F scale, and give me a really brief explanation as to why. Are you game? Definitely. All right. First up, the movie The Parent Trap. The one with Lindsay Lohan, which is the only one I've watched. A. Really fun, full of charisma, and very silly. Okay. The State of California. B minus. So much potential, best weather. We've really shot ourselves in both feet multiple times with some really bad public policy choices. Consulting for a presidential campaign. A, so exciting. You learn a lot, you have to move quickly, and you work with really talented people. Big data in education. A++. The only way to run a modern education system is with great researchers getting access to great data. Okay. U.S. public schools response to the pandemic. Ooh. C. Easy hindsight bias. Good God, so much compassion for everybody involved. Nothing was easy, but I wonder if there were better ways to get more kids access to good professional resources during that time. Cora Hillis. Definitely A+. What a remarkable woman. I hope everybody reads about her in chapter one of the book. She created the Iowa Child Welfare Research Station in the early 20th century, which made profound research discoveries about what we can really achieve for kids if we give them the right kinds of opportunities early in their life. All right, here's a big one. U.S. public schools. B+. I would give them a surprisingly high rating. I think we blame them for a lot of problems that they are not equipped to solve, and they're doing a surprisingly good job. Most parents are actually happy with their child's school. They just think other children's schools are bad. Universal pre-K. A, it has to be done right, just like airplanes and roads and bridges have to be done right, but it is essential to make sure we're not wasting the talents of millions of children in our country. Last grade, the war on poverty. A, a lot of wonderful programs came out of that, which today's big data research are kind of vindicating and showing that Head Start, 
and Medicaid and food stamps have had really big wins for participants. All right, that wraps it up. I may have given you a unfair selection because you had a very high grade point average for all those offered. I think that may have more to do with who we offered up rather than than your grading scheme. Thanks for the grades. Nate, you alluded to this before, but I want to ask about it. You say the U.S. spends a very small amount of money on education R&D. What would you compare it to? What's the appropriate amount? Who does it right? And what do you mean by we don't spend enough on R&D? Thanks for asking me about this very nerdy topic, Nat. I really appreciate it. In other major industries like health and transportation and communication, they spend about 2 to 3% of their income, their revenue on research and development to innovate and to improve productivity over time. If you sum up the implicit GDP of parents, it's over $5 trillion. It's the biggest so-called industry in our country. And they are spending almost 0% of their income on research and development. The main agency devoted to child development research is the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development in the federal government. And it should be probably 25 to 50 times larger than it is to make child development behave in terms of research like other big industries in our economy. So what do you think a robust investment in education R&D would, would get us? What would we learn? We would quickly learn how to avoid things like the Tennessee Early Childhood Program, which found disappointing negative impacts on kids. Because instead of conducting a few small randomized controlled trials every year, we would be conducting dozens of large randomized controlled trials every year. We would quickly learn how big and how small a class size needs to be to assure that all children can benefit from a preschool. We would learn you know, how much training teachers need. We would learn the importance of windows and sunlight and air conditioning. We could learn a lot about how to improve our education system, just like other industries refine their processes over time. And right now we're not learning any of that. Centuries go by and we don't learn how to optimize our child development system. So Nate, how does this port over to upper ages, later grades, just regular public schools? I mean, you're going to face a bunch of people that say, well, hey, we have a public school system that doesn't work in this magical R&D, you know, we did it right. We're seeing the overwhelming benefits from, maybe that's not fair, maybe it is, but how do you differentiate the parent trap in sort of the early years from the solutions that are arguably present through our current public schools? There are really great programs that can help kids at every age through early career formation. It's not just about early childhood education. People focus a lot on how little kids, their brains are still developing, and it's this special, irreversible time. That is probably true in some ways. It's definitely true in some ways, but that doesn't mean we can't help older kids. Tutoring has been found to be very powerful for middle school kids. I'm sure it can help high school kids as well. College counseling has been found to be critical and powerful for older kids. Early career sort of mentoring and development programs have been found to be very effective for kids in their early 20s. So I don't think this is just about early childhood. I think it's a full-blown birth to, say, 25 kind of thing. Just like Medicare and Social Security cover you after you're 65. That's 20, 30 years for a lot of people. The same thing should be true of our investments in young people. 
So you mentioned Medicare, and, and that brings me to thoughts about in the book, you say, well, in the United States, we support the elderly to a great degree, much more than we support children. Make that case. Medicare and Social Security are a very big investment. In fact, in some ways, they are too big, and they will have to be trimmed gradually over time, especially Medicare. They came about because we as a country decided they were worthwhile, that older people who had spent their lives contributing should not be poor. And before Medicare and Social Security, older people had very high poverty rates and had very unequal access to modern health care. Children don't have the kinds of political organization support that older people have. First of all, children are completely disenfranchised. They can't vote. Second of all, their parents undervote because they're so darn busy. And that has resulted in a massive underinvestment in children, even though investments in children are much more valuable for society in terms of their ultimate payoff than investments in elderly people. They're both important. We need both. But if you have to make trade-offs, many things would point you towards a bigger investment in children because it would prevent so many other problems over the course of people's lives. I advocate for a program that I call family care, which really lumps together all these different professional support services I'm talking about, from early education to tutoring, to counseling, to college support programs and early career formation programs. I call it family care after Medicare because I think it's an obvious gap in our social system. We don't ask people to figure out older people's health care on their own, and we shouldn't be asking parents to figure out child development on their own. It's just as complicated and inaccessible to millions of families as health care was to people before Medicare. So that's really the story in the book. And I argue it's not going to happen until parents can come together across party lines and tap into their political power together. So Nate, you mentioned conservative pushback to some of these ideas, and I can go right off the bat and say, well, this is a huge government program. What you're suggesting is, well, the government should take responsibility for all these aspects because there's inequality and there's going to be some conservative folks who would say, look, that's not really the government's responsibility to equalize all these things. How do you make the case that this is not only a cost effective but an appropriate role for government, particularly to folks who aren't necessarily enamored of that idea right out of the gate. The first thing I want to point out is that this is not a big government battalion of mysterious bureaucrats attacking our families, (laughs) okay? This is about subsidies, not about agencies and bureaucrats. This would just allow you and your friends and relatives and everybody in your community to access local professionals, tutors, counselors, summer camp providers, daycares. This would include religious daycares. This would include summer programs that did have religious components, most likely. It doesn't have to be some faceless government thing. And to say that's not the role of government, I I think that would be a longer discussion that would require a little bit of trust. You can say that, but why? why? Why should our government not help kids grow up to become scientists and engineers and entrepreneurs and artists and leaders and priests and ministers and other kinds of successful people who contribute to our society. So why should we live in a society that is more impoverished and more dependent and more criminal and less married and less productive than it needs to be? Why isn't it the government's role to build a stronger, healthier, happier, richer society? So Nate, to close out on this, this is a big argument. It's an interesting book. 
But let's talk at the end here about low-hanging fruit, right? So there's a lot that could go in here to move forward on the family policy, the family care idea. But it's a big, probably too hard for, well, at least our current politics to swallow. Given that, what's the policy idea or one or two that you would think would make the the biggest difference for the parent trap as a first step? I do think the starting really early in life when people have children and are getting used to parenthood. So paid parental leave for mothers and fathers to stay at home and build that that bond with their child in a in a relaxed environment to not be so stressed out during these first few months of parenthood and we're not talking about necessarily european style one one and a half years of leave but at least two to three months for all new parents i think that has been shown to be really powerful for the parents and for the kids the other thing would be an early learning system i think by the time kids reach age five There are huge gaps between higher income and lower income kids, between white kids and black and Hispanic and Native American kids. And that's just tragic. That sets up our public school system to face insurmountable challenges with these little five-year-old kids. So I think an early learning system would be both very impactful. It would make our K-12 system work better because it, it wouldn't be starting out with so many obstacles when kids entered the door. And it would also have another benefit, which is I think it would get people used to the idea of government subsidies improving their lives. And it would be a really tangible sigh of relief for millions of parents around the country. And I think that could be an entry point for people across the political spectrum to see that, yes, if our federal government is willing to make certain investments, we can have richer, healthier communities. And this is not some scary bureaucratic takeover. It's just giving everybody access to the full potential of our local community resources. Nate Hilger, the book, The Parent Trap, is available. It's interesting argument. And thanks for coming on the report card to talk about it. Thank you so much for having me and for phrasing questions in a generous, open-minded way, Nat. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Nate Hilger. We'll include a link to The Parent Trap and some of Nate's other work in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute and leave us a review so other people will find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.